it's always good, our Father, to get together in the middle of a busy week. We have, uh, we have a lot to do. We have a lot of responsibility. We're guys. We don't talk about it a lot, but we do. And the buck stops with us. We've got um, wives and kids and grandkids. We've got families. We're trying to provide. We're trying to keep everything going. And in this economy, that's, that's a challenge. But we are reminded that even as we attempt to take care of our families and build our families and build them spiritually, not upon the sand, but upon the rock, um, at times we, uh, well, we just need to be reminded of Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, they who labor, labor in vain. We thank you that we are not uh, by ourselves, and we thank you that we are not alone. We thank you that we have a shepherd. We have a shepherd who daily bears our burdens, who leads us, who watches us, who says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we thank you that he is the great shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. He knows each of us by name. He knows all about us. He understands our thought from afar. Uh, he made us. He fashioned us. He created us. He gave us gifts. Other gifts he withheld on purpose. He has a work for each of us to do. And we are reminded, our Father, as we go through life, sometimes we forget this, but we are reminded what Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And there are times we go running off this way or that way. Isaiah said, all of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way. And when we do that, you are gracious to come after us. And if need be, you'll discipline us so that we'll learn the lesson that we have to stay close to you. We um, wonder and shake our heads at how people live in this world without knowing you. And the fact is, they don't live very well. Well, they might do all right financially, and they might have the big houses and the stuff and the toys and all that, but um, they have to keep moving and they have to keep medicated and they have to keep boozed up. They can't stop for any significant length of time and think because it's too frightening. They got a lot of activity, but they have little peace and they need the Savior to come into their lives and be their shepherd. We are grateful that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You have revealed that to us. We are grateful for the Word, for the Bible, which is the Word of the Lord Jesus Christ to us. And even tonight, as we take time to once again look at this remarkable man, David, who you used in such a significant way, historically, 
We pray that uh, the work you did in his life and the principles that are there will speak to us as we are on our daily journey. We've got different needs in here. Some guys are at their wit's end. Encourage them. Help them. Give them a shot of hope right in their hearts and minds that they are not alone, that you will lead them, that you will make a way for them even though they walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We'll fear no evil, for you are with us. And you will get us through. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're working our life. uh, We're working... uh, our study this semester through the life of David, but we're, we're doing it from a little bit different standpoint. What, what we're doing is we are looking at the life of David through the lives of the men that God brought into his life at different times. Um, I, I'll probably quote this every week until we finish the study, but it was, it was Thomas Watson who said that God has many tools in his tool shed that he uses providentially in our lives. Uh, some tools um, are designed to uh, support, bolster, lift. Um, get a flat tire, it's always great to have a jack in your trunk. Uh, it's even better to have a AAA card. And just uh, let them come and, especially you've got a suit on and you're going to an important meeting. Anyway, you know, certain tools will lift you up. Certain tools will assist you. Others, other tools are not designed to lift up, they're designed to uh, tear apart. A crowbar, can, a crowbar can do some significant damage. And along the life, we're going to see different people, along our, our, our road in life and our journey in life, God is going to use different people in our lives, and they all come with a purpose. And some will lift us up, some will encourage us, and will encourage us pretty much our entire journey. You might get a friend that will walk with you through life for Gosh, 40, 50, 60 years, what, a, what, a, what an incredible gift that would be. But there are, are also other people that come along at certain times, and they don't help us. Uh, they actually kind of rip us apart. And even they are under the sovereignty and providence of Almighty God. David had them all, good, bad, friend, foe. He had them all. You'll get them all. I'll get them all. We, we, can, we can learn from how God used different people in David's life. It's probably how he's, he's going to work in your life and my life, and that's why we're looking at him. Uh, David had, he had quite a run. He had quite a life. Because he, he was, uh, I mean, he came out of nowhere. He came out of, the, out of the sheep pens. This guy spent most of his life as a young man, uh, in, in sheep dung up to his knees. It, uh, it wasn't an Ivy League pedigree. But what God was doing when David was just a young boy overseeing and caring for his, his dad's sheep, nobody knew him. He wasn't famous. He wasn't in the spotlight. 
They didn't call him king. Uh, they hardly knew who he was. It's interesting when Samuel came to the house of Jesse, to his father's house, and said, look it, I want all your sons in here. He pulled in seven of his, of his sons. Because Jesse didn't know which one was going to be king to replace Saul, but it was going to be one of them, and he's checking them all out. He goes, that guy's pretty good looking, that guy's pretty sure. No, and he, and he goes, no, that's not it. He goes, you got any other, you got any other boys? Well, 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 yeah, well, David's out there with the sheep. Uh, I, I find it interesting, his own dad didn't think enough of him to bring him in when the prophet said, bring him in. It seems to me he was somewhat overlooked by his own father, as some of you guys have been in your lives. And when that happens, you spend a lot of your time and a lot of your existence trying to earn the approval of your father. It's not unusual to meet guys who are 50, 60 years old, let alone 20, 30, 40, who really the, the deepest motivation of their lives is they're trying to get the approval of their father. And in some cases, their fathers are dead. How do you get that approval when a father is dead? You've got to go to the perfect father. You've got to go to the heavenly father. Uh, David had some issues from his home, just like you do and just like I do. There are no perfect families. There are no flawless families. Families are comprised of people who are deeply flawed and were sinners. Yet uh, God takes us, God makes us, he sets us sovereignly in certain families, the family in which you were born. It's no mistake, it's part of God's plan for your life. God's sovereign over it all. Uh, it's been said, from the womb to the tomb. He's got a plan and he's got you covered. And those early events of childhood, even how God creates us and makes us in the womb, Psalm 139. And David talked about Psalm 139 and how he was constructed and fearfully and wonderfully made. He gave glory to God because he understood that his very existence was dependent on the fact that God formed him and fashioned him in the womb. David had gifts for the calling that was going to be upon David's life. God gives you the gifts for what you're going to need even before you're cognizant and aware and alive and exist. So he formed him and fashioned him in his mother's womb, gave him certain gifts, withheld others, but gave him the gifts he was going to need for his life's work, and he's done that for you too. And he's done it for me. And sometimes we look around at guys and we say, man, I wish I was gifted like that talking to a young guy this week who told me that. Man, I wish I had his gifts, but I don't. Kind of grieves over that. He's going to have to get over that. He's going to have to accept who he is and how God has made him and fashioned him because God has a work for him to do that's different from this guy's work. So you start tracking David, and we've been tracking him for a few weeks now. And you start tracking David, and uh, what's interesting is he comes out of this, this sheepfold on his dad's ranch or sheep ranch, whatever the heck you call that thing. And uh, he's been anointed to be king. Nobody knows who he is. The first king, Saul, as we've said in here the last few weeks, Saul is the synthetic leader. David's the authentic leader. you got an unbelievable contrast here between true leadership and false leadership. The authentic leader is David. You guys that are just joining us, I'm, I'm just bringing you up to speed here. Leadership and Christianity is always an issue of the heart. The heart, the gut. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. 
All your heart. David was a man after God's own heart. Saul wasn't. Saul was a big guy. He looked like a leader. He's the biggest guy in Israel. Sucker looked like he knew what he was doing. He, had a, he started okay, but man, he didn't last. He, he was a failure because he didn't have a heart for God. He wanted to do it his way. He was king. He loved being king, but he had no interest in following the king of kings. So God took his spirit away from Saul and um, put it upon David. Now, here's what's interesting. I'm not going to go through all this text as I'm trying to set it up. What happened is when the Spirit of God departed from Saul, the only thing that would calm him down was a certain, it was harp music. And uh, he'd have these violent rages. So uh, apparently someone had one of David's CDs that, that they'd done. And they, I mean, if you look it up and later, earlier in 1 Samuel, you'll see it. And they said, hey, this guy down here. And so David got a part-time gig coming up and playing for Saul. It's what happened. And then he'd go back home. Now Saul didn't know this was the guy who's anointed to be king and who's going to replace him. He didn't know it at that point. But God knew it. And then you had the whole Goliath thing. And Saul should have been the one to take him on because Saul was the big guy in Israel and Goliath was the big guy in the Philistines, but he wouldn't do it. So here comes David. And David says, I'll take the sucker on. Shoot, I took on that bear and that lion. The Lord is with me. Nobody knew about that. It wasn't on ESPN. It wasn't on SportsCenter. It was just him and the Lord and the lion and the sheep. You see, God builds his men in private, and then he puts them on the public platform. So, so God will take men privately, and he'll do a work, and he will put them in situations and find out if they will walk in faith and trust him or not. And after God tests the man, God uses the man and promotes the man. That's 75 of Psalm. Psalms, not from the east, not from the west, not from the desert comes promotion, but promotion comes from the Lord. So David shows up, <clears throat> kills Goliath, and then he starts singing this song, Saul is slain his thousand, David is tens of thousands. Now you got a problem. Because as we've said last few weeks, when an auth here's what happens with synthetic leaders. When an authentic leader shows up, when a guy is just a shell of a leader, and, and we, my gosh, I mean, you see this everywhere. You see it in business. You, you see it in churches. You see it in, uh, you obviously see it in politics. You know, someone looks like a leader. They're glib. They, they, they just, they, they can play people like a piano. They can play the media like a piano. But, the, but there's nothing inside. There's just nothing. They're just a shell. Well, when you take a synthetic leader and an authentic leader shows up, the synthetic leader gets threatened, and then the synthetic leader has to destroy. Now, that's what happens with David. So the early years of David's life, from the teenage years on, he's on the run from Saul because Saul's going to kill him. Now, why? Because Saul is jealous. Saul wants to hold on to the throne, even though he knows it's going to go to David. And he's going to destroy him. So David is on the run. David is on the run. Um, there used to be... i got to be careful. I, I'm trying to get more contemporary. Because I find myself saying often, there used to be. I don't find myself saying there is. Basically, it's because 
uh, I live in a cave. <laughs> and I've come to realize, anyway, I gotta get with it. But uh, there used to be a show on TV uh, called The Fugitive. And once again, you young guys, I would say, Google it. <laughs> now, if you're not that young, you might remember a movie with uh, Harrison, yeah, Harrison uh, Skywalker and uh, who's the other guy? Tommy Lee Jones. Okay, that movie, The Fugitive, was based on a TV show way back when. Pretty good show. And, uh, you know, this guy gets, you know, they think he killed his wife. He didn't kill his wife. This other guy with one arm killed his wife. And so that sucker's running for like, how long did that show go? About 19 years. He's running. Yeah. Uh, that, that was TV. That was a TV show. This is real life. David's on the run for 10 years. Now, here's what starts happening, though. Um, oh, and by the way, tonight we're going to see, we're going to look at an event that happened in David's life where he ran into a guy that had absolutely no interest in being his friend or in being an ally. This, uh, he ran into a guy that basically uh, derided him and hated his guts and uh, mocked him and humiliated him. That happened to David on numerous occasions, actually. There's a guy named Nabob, 1 Samuel 25. But on the way to 1 Samuel 25, because we want to set up why he had this encounter with Nabob, on the way to 1 Samuel 25, I, I'd like you to stop off, if you would, in 1 Samuel 22. Because David's on the run, we know that. But stuff starts happening. Because you see, after a while, people start seeing through synthetic leaders. And all the promises and all the hype, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do this. And then they begin to figure out, you know what, there's nothing there. This is a sham. This is a fraud. This is a fake. Uh, chapter 22 of 1 Samuel. And once again, David's on the run, and I'm not hitting every verse. There's a lot here, and man, we'd be in this thing for six years, and I'm not going to do that. But uh, 1 Samuel 22. Um, so David departed from there and escaped to the cave at Adullam. Now watch this. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. See, now it's gotten so bad that not only uh, is David on the run, but now his family's in bad shape. Because, and it makes sense, because Saul is basically insane. So this is interesting that this family, at least as you read between the lines early on, he wasn't all that close with his brothers. When he showed up to the Goliath thing, his older brother starts riding him. So what are you doing here? Who told you to come here? You, you can just see the friction. But now that brother and the other brothers and his mother and father, what happens? They show up and they join David at, the, at this cave. David spent a lot of time, these 10 years, he was in the cave. The cave, the cave psalms. Uh, psalm 142, Psalm 57, kind of throw Psalm 37 in there too. David's hiding out in the caves. So his family shows up. And they're with him. Then note verse 2 of 22. Everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered to him and he became captain over them. Now there were about 400 men with him. Suddenly David's got, he's got his own guys. 
who, who are these guys? Well, let, let's say this about David. Um, this was a time in David's life where, where David was in tremendous trial, he was in tremendous trouble, and he pretty much bottomed out in terms of life. But it was, it, these were the years of preparation. These were the years of daily trust in God. He didn't know where he was going to sleep that night. He didn't know how he was going to get provision. He, when you're on the run like that, you're in a survival mode. You're in a survival mode all the time. And when you sleep, you don't sleep that well. You just don't. You can't do the deep sleep because you're vulnerable when you sleep deeply. So he's got 400 men with him. Why, why does he have 400 men? Because they're sick and tired of what's going on too. And what they see is, why would they come to David? Now, I, I get the sense here. I get the sense, and I'll show you this a little later. But I get the sense that these were guys. Did they have difficulties? Did they have problems? Yeah. But they were drawn to David. Why were they drawn to David? Because he was an authentic leader in Israel. They knew authentic leaders had a heart for God. That tells me these guys had a heart for God. They just weren't following him because they thought he was going to pass certain kinds of legislation. They believed in this guy. They believed in his heart. This was a nation who belonged to the Lord God. And these were guys that came to him because that's the kind of man they wanted to follow. Did they have trouble? Did they have difficulty? Yeah. Had they hit hard times? Yeah. But they were looking for an authentic leader. Flip over. Now, now go to uh, 23. First Samuel 23. And I'm just going to jump in with no context, but I want you to see something. Uh, verse 13 of chapter 23. It says, Then David and his men, about 600, will shoot in two chapters. He's picked up 200 more guys. Why? Because the word spreads. This guy is the real deal. This guy has a heart, a heart for God. They were sick and tired of a counterfeit, synthetic leader who went through the motions, who said the right thing, but had no heart. Had no heart for people, had no heart for serving, had no heart for God, had no heart for anything except holding on to power. And that was Saul. And that's repeated throughout history. What did Hegel say? History teaches us that men never learn from history. It just keeps happening because people don't change. You got a new generation, you got new, new leaders, but the stories remain the same. They want to seize power, they want to hold on to power. Anyway. So now he's got 600 guys. Flip over, if you would, on your way to 1 Samuel 25 to 1 Chronicles 12. Just flip over to the right. And once again, David's on the run. This time he's at Ziklag. Now these are the ones who came to David at Ziklag while he was still restricted because of Saul, the son of Kish. What does that mean? While he was still being pursued. Saul had 3,000 guys that were after David full time. Coleman that, you know, you go south of Jerusalem, and, you, you, you know, Jerusalem's up high, but if you go south, that those mountains drop off down towards the, uh, 
the Dead Sea. And so up in the mountains, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's watered, there are waterfalls, there's grazing land. Uh, but then it drops off and it goes into desert, Judean desert, Dead Sea, dead as a doornail, you know, body of water. Um, it's interesting topography, but you got all these caves, you got all these hideouts, you got En Gedi with the caves, hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of caves, hundreds of them. So David's kind of, that's where David would do laps. He, if you look at a map in the back of your Bible, he would kind of make, he had a circuit where he was on the run. Uh, these are the ones who came to David at Ziklag while he was still restricted because it's all the son of Kish. And these were among the mighty men who helped him in war. So these are some of the guys that were with him. Now watch this. Verse 2. They were equipped with bows, using both the right hand and the left to sling stones from the bow. They, uh, now, now I, want, I want to show you something that's interesting to me. Uh, these guys were warriors. You've got a listing of these guys, and as you go through... It talks about some of these men and how great they were. Look at verse 8. Uh, from the Gadites, they came over to David in the stronghold in the wilderness. Mighty men of valor, men trained for war, who could handle shield and spear, whose faces were like the faces of lions, and they were as swift as, as the gazelles on the mountains. These, hey, you know what he had here? And you go all the way through this, and you know what he had? This sucker, he had Navy SEALs coming. He had Army Rangers coming. He had the elite of the elite. These guys were coming, and these guys were trained. Right up there in verse 2, they were equipped with bows, using both the right hand and the left to sling stones. I know a lot of you guys, I know a lot of you guys should have been in the NBA. You know it, and I know it. Personally, in my, in my life, that's true. And I, the older I get, the better I was. That's probably true in your life as well. But there was a coach who didn't like. Something happened, and it thwarted what could have been an unbelievable career. Uh, you know, sports are fun. Uh, very few guys, very, very few guys make it to the top levels. And then the guys who make it to the top levels, most of them don't last hardly any time at all. Because it's, uh, it's pretty competitive. But uh, guys that make it to the very top levels, they're a cut above. For instance, um, when you're playing basketball, even high school basketball, even junior, middle school, you're playing basketball, you can figure out real quick when you're playing basketball, you figure out real quick what's a guy, what, what, what a guy's natural hand is. Most guys are right-handed. And most guys, you know, they dribble all the time with their right hand. All the time they dribble with their right, don't they? Yeah. And, and, but if you play a guy and you cut him off to his right and he's got to go left, you're going to figure out real quick if the sucker's any good with his left hand. See, to get good with your left hand, it takes discipline, it takes work. When my guys were small, uh, I was going to vicariously live my life through them, so I drove them unmercifully, athletically, <laughs> and ruined their hearts and lives, uh, which I sort of regret. <laughs> it's a joke. I, I, I tried not to do that, because I'd seen too many guys do it. But what I did do was work with them some, and I remember when John was just maybe... We, we, we had a basket in the backyard there in that one house, and we'd shoot hoops, and um, we were out there one day, and he was dribbling, you know, with his natural hand, and, uh, you know, I was just talking to him. I said, you know, John, the guys who are, who are really good, the guys you like to watch on TV, the guys who are really good, they can dribble with their left hand. Have you noticed that? They can go either way. So why don't we, do you want to work on your left hand a little bit? 
He goes, yeah, yeah, Dan, let's do it. I said, okay. I'll tell you what we'll do, because we play a little game of one-on-one. If you dribble every time you dribble with your left hand and you make a basket, I'll double the, the, the score. Okay? So you get twice as many points. I was just trying to motivate. So he'd start out and he'd go with the right, and then I'd, I'd shade him to the right, so he'd have to go left and, oh, and you, oh, I'll never get it. Well, you just keep working at it. You just, it's no big deal. Just work on it. Just work on it a little bit. And when you're outside, just dribble with your left sometimes, you know. And anyway. And I don't know, later that summer, he went to a weak basketball camp and I picked him up and he was all excited. He said, Dad, I got a trophy. Yeah, I said, great. Would you, for dribbling. I said, for dribbling. He goes, yeah. He said, I whipped him, Dad. I said, you did. He goes, yeah, they set up the pylons and you had to dribble down with your right hand and then dribble that back with your left. He said, it was great, Dad. I said, good. Well, see, sometimes it pays to work on something, doesn't it? Yeah. See, those guys at the top levels, they go to the right or they go to the left. It's no big deal. And here's the other thing. They don't only shoot with the right. They shoot with the left. Jordan could do that. Bird could do it. Magic could do it. Bob Cousy could do it. Google him. <laughs> Bob Pettit. Google him. Anyway. Jerry West, the NBA logo. Guys are unbelievable. Now, why am I going through all this? Because these guys were studs. These guys are with David. See, most guys in battle, you get wounded in the right, you're done. You're on injured reserve. Not these guys. They get wounded in the right, what would they do? Just pick it up with the left, because they were as good with the left as they were with the right. These were incredible, competent, capable men who joined David. And, and again, I want to back up and say, why did they join him? Because he was authentic and he had a heart for God. Let me tell you what, let me tell you what, what we're crying out for. Where you work, what they're crying out for. Where, uh, where you live, what they're crying out for. Where uh, the city in which you reside in, you know what everybody's looking for? Everybody is looking for someone to fall. They're looking for an authentic leader. And a lot of times, if a guy will just stand up, when everybody else is caving, when everybody else is compromising, when everybody else wants the approval of the group, if one guy will just stand. Have you ever been in a situation where something was going on and one guy stood up and took a stand and was right? Have you ever noticed how when one guy does that, suddenly there's about 10 or 20 or 30 guys around him go, yeah, yeah, that's right. But they're waiting for one guy to do it. And David was the guy. Why does that happen? Because people are sick and tired of counterfeit synthetic leaders. Here's David. Okay, he's got his men now. And he and his men, they're on the run. It's just not David on the run. He's got all these guys. He's got 400, 600 guys. But Saul's got 3,000. So they're still outnumbered. And they're on the run for 10 years. Now, we've got to say this about David. David handled this overall pretty well. That should have been, uh, he was anointed to be king. He, uh, honestly, you've got to give the guy high marks, because on at least two occasions, he had opportunity to kill Saul, and he didn't do it. Did he not? You remember that time in the cave? He had all his buddies, they're back in there hiding out, and Saul comes in there, you know, had to do his business, and... 
David just say, hey, go get, go cut that sucker's, you know. Uh, so David just, you know, took a button off his Brooks Brothers robe or whatever it was. And then, you know, Saul heads out with his guys and, you know, 10 minutes later, he's on the other side of the creek, up on the other side of the ravine, up in the cave, and David goes out and he goes, hey, Saul, got your button here. Got your handkerchief. He could have taken him. He wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. So he showed unbelievable forbearance and patience. But let me tell you what happens. Let me tell you what happens to guys in the Christian life. We're trying to walk with the Lord. We're trying to handle our stuff. We're trying to be submissive to the Lord. Um, when you're in a time of prolonged difficulty, when you're in a time of prolonged pressure, and, and you're really, you know, you're trying to be in the Word, and you're trying to listen to the Lord, and you're trying to do it. Listen, you're not going to get it right 100%. You're just not. Because, because we're sinners. Because we're men. Uh, all, uh, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And we fall short of His glory, not only before we know Christ, but after. We're still sinners. We're redeemed, and the Spirit of God lives within us. But see, we, we need the Lord to keep saving us and keep saving us and keep saving us. And what happens if you flip over to 1 Samuel 25? He's got 400 guys with him. And then he's got how many guys with him? Now he's got 600 guys. And you've got a situation that happens to David in 1 Samuel 25. And, and I've got to tell you something. I am very glad this is in the Scriptures. I'm very glad. Because what happens in 1 Samuel 25, David is handling the pressure. He's handling the stress. He's, he's handling the prolonged frustration extremely well. He is waiting on God. He is waiting on God to come through for him. He is waiting on God to remove Saul rather than taking out Saul himself. Men of God are often called to wait on God for God's timing. God doesn't do things the way we would like him to do it. He works providentially. God will work providentially. God will work... Uh, strangely, and God will work slowly. And he did that in David's life. So David's having to wait, just as you're having to wait in some area of your life. And we get tired of the waiting, we get worn out, and we get fatigued, and, and we're fighting the good fight, and we're doing all we can. But here's what happened to David, and once again, I'm so glad this is here. Because what happens in 1 Samuel 25 is that David snaps. He just flat out loses it. And i got to tell you something. I'm glad this is in here because it encourages me. Now, I haven't sinned in 12 years. But I remember snapping about 12 or 13 years ago. But I've reached another level of spirituality. It's called pride. <laughs> the lady came up to C.H. Spurgeon, had heard the perfectionistic teaching, perfectionism, and she said, Mr. Spurgeon, I'll have you know I haven't sinned in seven years. He said, ah, oh, you must be very proud. She said, I am. <laughs> Never got it. All right, let's set this up. We're going to meet a guy named Nabal. This is, this is kind of an interesting story because uh, what this guy's going to do, and by the way, this guy's got this wife who's beautiful and who is uh, intelligent and discerning. 
And when you read the story, you think, how the heck did that happen? Sometimes great women marry absolute fools. I heard an amen. I don't know what, what does that mean, Ron? <laughs> you have something you want to share or what? <laughs> and sometimes good godly men marry women that are dripping faucets. Now, I got about four amens on that one. But uh, we'll leave it right there. Hey, people are screwed up, male, female, you see? Anyway, now watch what happens here. It's kind of a wild story. There was a man in Mayon whose business, I, I'm in 25-2. There was a man in Mayon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, the man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. And the woman was intelligent. The idea there is intelligent, along with the idea of uh, discernment and great understanding. She just wasn't uh, smart on the SAT, but she was smart about life. She was a spiritual woman. The woman was intelligent, and she was beautiful in appearance. But the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite. Uh, the actual name... Nabal actually means foolish. He was a foolish man. And, and the description here is, uh, the, 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 uh, no punches are being pulled with this guy. The, this guy was, catch this, this guy was harsh. Some fools are just fools. They're, they're just flighty, they don't think about life. This guy was a fool on purpose. This guy was harsh. This guy had a this guy had a hard heart. Proverbs says, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the wellsprings of life. Right? You've got to watch your heart. You've got to watch it very, very carefully. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he, the old King James Version says. The heart includes the mind. This guy was harsh, this guy was hard, this guy was, uh, this guy was in rebellion to the Lord God. You say, how do you know that? Because he was evil in his dealings. He didn't want to do business with this guy. He didn't, want to get, he didn't want to cut a business deal with this guy. He would take you every possible way he could take you. He was quick to get a lawyer, he was quick to sue, he was quick to, he was, this, this was the kind of guy you wanted to avoid. This is Nabal. Okay? <clears throat> and it came about, verse 4, that David uh, heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing a sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, Have a long life. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house. Peace be to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at your hand to your servants and to your son, David. Now, let me explain this to you. Here's what's going on. Uh, the sheep shearing time was a, was a festival time. It's sort of like when they do the, the, the harvest of the grapes. You've seen some of these movies. They harvest the grapes, and then everybody's singing, and, you know, and they throw them in the big vats, and the girls get in barefoot, and, you know, they... 
Anthony Quinn is getting drunk. You remember those movies. Anyway. It's a time of celebration. There's a big feast, and they got food, and everybody comes from surrounding. That's kind of what's going on here. It was sheep shearing time. And what the norm was is that it was a time of celebration. It was a time of prosperity where uh, there was a celebration. Food was shared. And what's happening is David is out there with his guys. Now, where David was, if you look at the topography, it, it, listen, David wasn't the only guy on the run in Israel. There were other guys. You said, well, he had his four or six hundred. Yeah, you did. But those guys were following David because they had a heart for God like David did. And they believed in David. But you also had guys on the run that didn't have a heart for God. And they were thieves. They were outlaws. They, they would steal sheep. They would uh, extort. They would do whatever they could do. So there were some bad dudes out there. So David comes along and said, hey, it's a festive time. You know, uh, we'd like to be a part of that. In that culture, in that time, it made all kinds of sense. It's a time to share in the blessing of God. And in actuality, we have not taken anything that belonged to you. All right, watch this. Verse 9, when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal, according to all these words in David's name. Then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants and said, who is David? It's very derisive. And here's the thing. He knew who David was. Everybody in Israel knew who David was. David was the talk of the whole nation because of what happened with Goliath. So this is, watch, watch the disrespect. Watch the dishonor. Watch the, uh, the criticism that was unfounded. The sarcasm, the ridicule, the cynicism. Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is this son of Jesse? Who is he? I don't know. I mean, he's just dripping with disrespect. There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. I don't know this guy. There's an epidemic going on in this country. This country's falling apart because of guys like him. Shall I then take my bread, my water, and my meat? that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men whose origin I don't even know. So, David's young men retraced their way, went back, they came and told him according to all these words. David said to his men, put on your swords. David lost it. So each man girded on a sword. David also girded on his sword, and about 400 men went up behind David, and 200 stayed with the baggage. David snapped. Why, why did he snap? Because Nabal wouldn't let him go through the drive-thru. That's basically why. Nabal wouldn't let he and his guys be a part of the feast, and he wouldn't give them provisions and all that. And, and, and in, other words, in other words, what David, David's reaction, quite frankly, in this situation, doesn't make a lot of sense. It's what you call an overreaction. Why do you overreact? I'll tell you why he overreacted. Because he was under such stress stress and pressure and exhaustion from every other area of his life and then something completely unrelated to all these other things happened that's very very small and he snaps it's called displaced anger came across an article this week by a guy named uh, Tolian Chavision who is Billy Graham's grandson and a pastor in Florida. Um, 
and he's talking about anger. He says, this is very good, I'll read you two paragraphs. He says, there are two types of anger, God-centered and self-centered. God-centered anger is when you get angry because God has been dishonored and his ways have been maligned. Self-centered anger is when you're angry because you have been dishonored or your ways have been maligned. The anger that marks our fallen world is self-centered, not God-centered. People get angry because their purposes have been upset, their desires have been squelched, their preferences have been ignored. They get mad because they have been disrespected, discomforted, or inconvenienced. That's what happened to David here. David had a heart for God, but what happened with David in this situation is that David just snapped and took it personally. I mean, that was it. That happens to us sometimes, doesn't it? Sometimes, sometimes uh, to other people close to us when we snap, it makes no sense. That's because what has happened is the person's in that situation and isn't it interesting how we're so quick to snap in our own lives with those who we love the most? Isn't that interesting? I had a guy this weekend where I was teaching. Yeah, probably in late 20, I don't know, 25, 26, 27. He said, you know, Steve, I got a problem. I said, well, what's going on? And he said, you know, I just got a real foul mouth. I'm, I just, I'm always swearing. I'm always saying bad words. I said, really? He goes, yeah, and I can't stop. I just can't stop. I've been asking God to help me. He said, I just can't stop. I said, really? I said, you know the Lord? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah. I just can't stop. I said, is this, I mean, you know, is this your home church? He goes, yeah. And I said, what's, so you, you go to church? He goes, oh, yeah. I said, what service you go to? He goes, I go to the service at 11 o'clock on Sunday. I said, good. So you, you, so, so you can't stop. And he goes, no. So I said, it must be embarrassing for you to, to start cursing at church with all those church people. He goes, well, I don't do that. I said, you don't. He goes, no. I, oh, no, I'd never do it there. And I said, I thought you said you couldn't stop. It was, it was, it was pretty good. Because the poor guy just stepped right into it. And he was a good guy, and he, and he immediately went, yeah, yeah, that's right. He says, I guess I can stop, huh? I go, yeah. So where do you have problems? He goes, I have a problem at home, and I got this little girl. And I don't want to hear that. And I said, well, let me tell you something, man. It'd be be you'd be better off swearing at church than swearing at home in front of her. You, you just got your priorities screwed up. So if you're going to live, if you're going to, if you're going to try and be a godly man, do it at home. You'd be better off doing it at home and not doing it in church. And see, here's the thing: you know Christ, don't you? And see, the fact is, you can do it. It's just that you've given yourself permission. And what you got to do is, you got to take yourself in hand, and say, no longer will I give myself permission. You're going to have to put this to death. Romans says, if by the Spirit we are putting to death the deeds of the body, we shall live. And you've got a power. You've already demonstrated you can do it. You've got an ability to do it. So now just do it at home. But you've given yourself permission to get away with it at home. <clears throat> so see, here's, and this is a good thing, because every guy has to face this. I said, see, you're, here's the deal. And your little girl's real, well, she 
24 months or something? Okay, good. You're good. What you're going to have to do now, see, you've got to live your Christianity out at home. That's what has to happen. See, that's authentic Christianity. That's being an authentic leader. Doesn't mean you're perfect. Doesn't mean it never happens. But there's to be a consistency. A consistency. I can't even say it. There, there's to be a consistency. Flip over to Titus chapter 2 real quick. Just real quick. Titus, if you're in Timothy, go right. If you're in Revelation, go left. <laughs> Titus 2, verse 2. Older men are to be temperate. That means sober. They're to be dignified. That means serious about life. They're to be sensible. That means you're to be a sound thinker. Sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. See, there are certain things that God wants to develop in our lives as we walk with him as we get older. As you get older, you don't want to be a child in the faith. You want to become a mature man. So here's this young guy. I got a problem. Great. I'm glad you admitted it. But the power of Christ is available in your life. But this is something you're probably going to have to work on. This is going to be your weak spot. This is, everybody has an Achilles heel. I know I've told this before, but I'm going to tell it again. And forgive me if I have recently. But my buddy, Stu Weber, I love Stu. He's a pastor in Oregon. We've been friends a long time. Uh, Stu a, was a Green Beret, highly decorated soldier. He's quite a guy. He wrote a book called Tender Warrior, and that's Stu. Stu, when I, we, we've been able to speak together many times over the years. Whenever I introduced Stu, I said, listen, Stu, uh, Stu knows 17 different ways to kill you. So you don't want to tick him off. But the thing about Stu is, Stu's a very tender guy. He's, he's, and, and he can read guys. And he has a great ministry to men because he's a warrior, but he's also very tender, just like David was. But one of the things, you know, it's interesting about Stu, because Stu can be a very intimidating guy. And he loves the Lord, and he's a great leader. And, man, I mean, he's a man's man. Stu and I were talking one time, and he was telling me, he, he would know this about him because he's so calm and serene. He's a Titus II guy. But Stu has a hair-trigger temper. And we were talking one time, and he said, you know, Steve, I fought it for years and years and years, and I was doing pretty well, and then my boys started playing competitive sports. And then he had a huge issue on his hands, especially when they play basketball. And Stu was telling, we were doing a conference one time, and he said, he said Steve, I am fighting this. It's the biggest battle of my life, because last week I was at Ryan's game, and... Uh, I, was, I had my, uh, my headset on that my wife had given me listening to Christian praise music. <laughs> it's true. She had given him that to help him just worship God when he's watching basketball. Just to try and help him, restrain him. The Spirit of God would restrain him. And he said, I'm listening to the praise music. He said, next thing I know, I'm on the floor confronting the referee. And you don't want Stu Weber confronting you. And, he, and he, he said, Steve, I don't even know how I got there. Now, that's, a, that's what you call a hair-trigger temper. He said, I didn't mean to knife the guy. <laughs> no, he didn't say that. It, and it got to a point where the elders of his church 
And I'm, I mean, this guy's a leader's leader. I mean, Stu is, I'm going to tell you, I, I, there's no one I respect more than Stu Weber. It got to a point that they wouldn't, the elders would not let Stu go to a basketball game one of his kids was playing in without another pastor going with him. And Steve would go with him. And what would happen is it, he'd be there and he'd just watch the game and all of a sudden he'd feel a hand on his knee and a little pressure. That was Steve, his buddy Steve. You see. We've all got our stuff. We've all got our stuff. We've all got our, we've all got our sins that tend to master us and tend to, and, and tend to get us. And with David, you know what David was? David's was anger. It was an anger. It was a hair trigger because what happened with this Nabal guy? Was this guy an idiot? Was this guy a jerk? Yeah. Do you take 400 guys and you go slaughter his entire family because the guy won't give you the provisions? That's called an overreaction. So watch verse 13. David said to his men, get your sword, gird it on. Each man did. David girded on his. About 400 men went up, 200 stayed with the baggage. Now watch this and watch this woman Abigail show up and kick into action. This is very interesting. One of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. She didn't know anything about this. Yet the, that the men were very good to us, and we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything as long as we went about with them while we were in their fields. They were, now watch this, they were a wall to us both by day and by night, all the time we were with them tending the sheep. So these guys are speaking of the character of David's men. Did they come and steal the sheep? Did they take anything from them? No, these guys actually, were, I mean, they kept the other guys away from us. They were on our team. Nabal wouldn't have had the, you know, the productivity of, of the sheep shearing if these guys hadn't been out there, and he's scorning them. Okay, now watch what happens. Verse 17. Now, therefore, they say to her, no one consider what you should do. For evil is plotted against our master and against all his household, and he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. Now, in my Bible, that phrase that says, he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him, I have that in yellow, highlighted, and I have it underlined in black. Because I think this is... Uh, You've got to have neon lights around this, and I'll tell you why. This can happen. Now, Nabal was not a believer, but this can happen to Christian men, and I run into it all the time. What I mean by that is this. I run into Christian men all the time, and when we did a, our study on spiritual warfare last year, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might, put on the full armor of God, that you may be able to stand firm against the strategies of the devil. The enemy wants to take us down, then we're following Christ. And, and if he, he'll try all kinds of things. Uh, you may be vulnerable with anger like David was. It, it may be, for you, it's, uh, it's the love of money, uh, or it's pride, or it's uh, you know, loving the limelight. Or We all have got our stuff. Everybody is screwed up. But here's a strategy of the devil where he tries to take Christian men and put them in a position of, of what's described in verse 17, and it says, he is such a worthless, worthless man, watch this, that no one can speak to him. I see this constantly. I see it constantly. 
The strategy is to get a man in a position where the, a man who is a Christian, where he is, has such a view of himself and he has such a perspective of himself that he is a man who refuses to take any criticism whatsoever or listen to anybody. Uh, what's going to happen in the rest of the chapter is that Abigail is going to go and take the food that should have been given to David in the first place. She is, that's what's going to happen. And she is going to meet David as he's coming with his guys. And what this godly, wise, discerning woman is going to do is that she is going to handle the situation. Unfortunately, she's married to a fool, but she is a godly woman. And she handles this, and she's got a guy who is a raging warrior coming in who is overreacted and who is not thinking. And she handles him with such wisdom and so with such discernment and with such a wonderful spirit that she basically takes the anger right out of the guy, David. Because she's a wise, godly woman. We could spend another hour just on how she handles this guy. Uh, one of the things she does is that, uh, verse 25, she says, David, don't pay attention to this worthless man Nabal, for as his name, so is he. She acknowledges the truth. Everybody, this is what he does. You're not the first. But notice that she went, um, listen, my wife Mary wrote a book called Reading Your Mail, M-A-L-E. Uh, she knows how to read me. And she has a section in here on Abigail and what Abigail did. And what Abigail did was she implemented tough love. She did five things. You know why she went and met David and took all this food? And again, I don't have time to do this. You know why she went and met, met David? Because what she did, number one, was she was taking care of the well-being of her household. They were all going to be wiped out. And they are going to be wiped out because she had a husband who was a fool. So what does she do? She stepped up and took care of the well-being of her household. Here's the second thing she did. She considered the well-being of the men. Nabal is a fool. That's just who he is. But she also considered David, because if you look at the text, if you look at the text, what she said to him, she says in verse 26, David, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. What she does is she speaks to him in such a way that, that she says, the Lord, is going to, the Lord is going to restrain you from this. And then note verse 28. Then what she does is, and the reason she does this, number three, is that she's a realist. She knows that David's a warrior. She knows that he's aggressive. She knows her husband is a fool. So she's realistic about the situation, and she addresses the situation head on. David, you're a warrior of God, but you're about to make a mistake. This man is a fool. Don't take this. And then what she does, number four, is that, where is number four? It was just here. I hate this. Every week this happens to me. Here's number four. She took ownership for her own responsibility. You say her responsibility, she didn't have any responsibility. Exactly. She had 0.01% responsibility, and it's in verse 28. She says, please forgive the transgression of your maidservant. What was her transgression? 
She didn't know about it. So what is she doing? She goes with the spirit of confessing her sin to David. And what she does, and then number five, is she was honest and forthcoming in a timely fashion. She just dealt with the situation, and she basically put everything in perspective. And you know what David said? David said, okay, take off the swords. Now, that's kind of the, the quick overall view. Now, I want to go back to what was said of Nabal. Here's the difference between Nabal and David. Here's the difference between an authentic leader and a synthetic leader. Here, here is the acid test. You see, the synthetic leader, the synthetic husband, the synthetic father, no one can speak to him. No one can speak to him. Because they're above it. But see, David, when she spoke to him, what did David do? David listened. In another spot in the book of Psalms, David said this in Psalm chapter 19. And this is, this is a brilliant insight. In Psalm 19, David said this. He said in verse 12, Who can discern his, hair, his errors? He says, Lord, acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Watch this. Let them not rule over me. You know what David's saying? He's saying we all have blind spots. We all have things in our lives that we cannot see. But other people around us see them. The Bible says faithful are the wounds of a friend. You know what this gal did? She had a messed up, crazy husband, but there was a household of people, and everybody was going to get hurt. And, and, and she loved them all enough to put herself in a position of risk, and she handled it. She also knew that David was God's anointed, and she was looking out for David. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. She just stepped up, and she handled it because this was a blind spot. And, and, and here David is saying, Lord, let me see my blind spots. What happens to some Christian guys is they refuse to acknowledge they've got blind spots. And so someone will come to you, someone who loves you, someone who cares for you, someone who is on your team, someone who believes in you, and they will say something, and you know what happens? No one can speak to him. They'll deny it. It's pride. It's arrogance. I have watched a situation for years from afar of a man who is a Christian leader who has had some notoriety. Written some books. You'll see his name on some other books that he has endorsed. He is greatly respected by those who don't live in his own house. Those who live in his own house and were raised by him have struggled deeply with Christianity. A son who has completely departed from the faith, brilliant in seminary, was going to go into ministry, but broke. Teaches philosophy and has for years. Teaches atheism, teaches there is no God. Has taught his children there is no God. Raised by this man who was lauded in the evangelical community. And there are those who have tried to go to this man and talk with him about the spirit in which he raised his family and the harshness in which he raised his family. And I was even privy to a conversation where someone who loved him approached him and was very kind and very specific. And he said, 
no, I have no responsibility for that. It wasn't me because I had tried before. And I knew it was like talking to that wall. And it's a tragedy. And may I say this to you? He wonders, as he's getting on in life, he wonders why God hasn't given him a wider influence of ministry. But in his own home, he is considered to be a fool. That's tragic. A couple years ago, uh, Mary mentioned something to me. Just something that she thought I... And she did it in a sweet way, in a very kind way. Just something she thought I should consider. And I said, I, I said okay. I kind of bristled. But I listened. I didn't, I didn't like it, but I listened. And then uh, a couple days later, another friend who would, would, would do anything for me mentioned the same thing to me. And I thought, okay. And then, uh, in a very gracious and a very kind way, another guy that I have all the admiration and respect for in the world said the same thing. And I thought, who do they think they are? <laughs> you know what? I figured I better listen up. I saw all these people walking around. The Lord told me. Oh, the Lord told me. I see these guys on Christian television. Well, the Lord told me. I get tired of that. Give me the, give me the word of God. But I'll tell you something. When I got two or three people who love Jesus Christ and two or three people I respect their walk with Christ and I know they're for me and they're on my team and they come to me and they say the exact thing, I'm going to tell you something. The Lord told me. Is that not true? See, the question is, am I going to be man enough to listen? Can I take it? Or am I going to play right into Satan's hands? Nabal was worthless because he would not listen. Did David have shortcomings? Did David have a hair trigger? Was he warned? Yeah, but you know what David did? To his credit, he listened. Took off the sword and got it right. Let's pray. Father, we all get worn out. Because life is hard and life is difficult and we get tired of the fight and we just, we get fatigued. We do. We, there are, we, you've blessed us. You've been so very good to us. But it is a battle. Life is hard. There's no doubt about it. And there are times we just lose it and there are times when we snap. And what, what, uh, what happens is, Lord, you want to grow us and you want to minister to us. This is an area uh, that each guy has, a different area, but it's an area where we're going to have to trust you. And you were so gracious and you were so kind to us and you were so forgiving of us, but at the same time you want us to grow. But if we will not listen, we cannot grow. If we will not listen, 
you cannot expand our borders. If we cannot listen, we cannot have a positive impact on those who are around us because they're looking at our hearts. So give us the courage to listen. Give us the courage to take the hard stuff. Give us the courage to take our castor oil because it's good for us. Not resent it, not defend ourselves, not rationalize it, but take it, swallow it, and say, Lord Jesus, help me. What a great, loving, caring, compassionate, forgiving God you are. We thank you. And we are grateful for Jesus that he just keeps on saving us. And by your grace, may we keep on listening and acting appropriately in response. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.